one toke over the line. Oh, calm down, it wasn't that good. Live from the United States, where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. Did you know you have to turn your mic on to actually talk into it? No clue. We live within an infrastructure that includes everything from nuclear nuclear reactors, massive hydroelectric dams, and polluting coal producers and oil refineries. But we also live in an infrastructure that includes the more mundane highways, roads, streets, alleys, and even what we do not see, like water and sewer lines or... Or those that are so ubiquitous we don't even notice them being there anymore, like electricity lines, cell towers, and satellite dishes. And the whole damn thing is contributing to climate change. As the Biden administration works on its infrastructure plan, and ideas like the Green New Deal are being discussed, this is a perfect time to reconsider what our infrastructure is, what it does, the devastation it has wrought, and to take a moment to consider what kind of infrastructure is best for everyone, not only business interests like the private for-profit businesses, that have taken over our infrastructure. With public utilities now privatized, they have become less democratic and more focused on profits than people, yet in what they call a public-private partnership, whenever that partnership goes sour, the public pays, but when the profits are rolling in, those all go to the private interests. Looking at the history of infrastructure and understanding that context to determine the full extent of its impact on society will lead to some stunning realizations about how our infrastructure and the financial interests it serves control and determine what society is. And the society and the infrastructure private interests have created are woefully underprepared when it comes to global warming. We'll take a deep dive into the history, meaning, and impact of infrastructure in a few when we have the return of political scholar Lale Khalili, who wrote the Noema magazine article, Apocalyptic infrastructures. We want to thank listener Robert P., who suggested we have Lale back on the show. Lale was on This Is Hell back in May of 2020 to discuss her book, Sinews of War and Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula, a book we selected as one of our favorites to be featured on This Is Hell last year. You can find out more about Sinews of War and Trade at sinewswartrade.com. Lale is professor of international politics at Queen Mary University of London. You can follow Lale on Twitter at Lale Khalili, and you can find out more about her at the gaming. I think it's the gaming. G O M M I N G dot org. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz, producing this morning's show. Well, if it's Wednesday, it must be Richard Norwood. Richard, what's new by you? Good morning, sir. Did you uh, want to take a gander at who was performing? The song I introed the show with. Uh, take a guess. Uh, I have no idea who that oh is. God. That's hilarious. It's Gail and Dale in 1971 on the Lawrence Welk show. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> you thought it was like some kind of uh, revival kind of song, and I... And the video is, is just of Gail and Dale. I wish it was of the musicians because they were probably just like cracking up. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, they sang the song with no, with zero irony. Right. Without any, we're not uh, mentioning at all what the song is actually about on the Lawrence Welk show. That is pretty hilarious. Every so often I stumble on the Lawrence Welk show on Sunday evenings for like 18 seconds and my girlfriend will go crazy she'll say turn that off immediately and it's just so frightening i remember being frightened by it when i was a child i was so scared of that show (sighs) i'm kind of nervous about getting the second dose of the vaccine immediately following tomorrow's show since i got the last shot i've been really angry a lot my response to everything that upsets me has been pure unadulterated anger and it's making me really mad see i'm not saying it's because the the vaccine it's because the vaccine but why should i be angry now that i'm being inoculated against a deadly virus after the first dose i felt like 
I was tripping for a day and a half, my arm hurt like hell, and they say the reaction to the second dose is far worse, so while I am looking forward to at least temporarily being immune to the worst aspects of certain variants, I'm still very nervous about getting another shot created by huge for-profit pharmaceutical companies who far too often prioritize their investors' demands over their patients' lives. And yeah, that's what I will be talking about on Friday's Patreon podcast of This Is Hell, the day after I get my second dose. So subscribe at patreon.com slash thisishell to find out what side effects I will be experiencing the day after getting shot up. Who knows how I will be reacting on Friday morning. Thanks to our newest subscriber on Patreon. Thanks to Towns P. Thanks, Towns P, for showing your support for This Is Hell by subscribing to our Patreon podcast again at Patreon. Dot com slash this is hell. More importantly than any of that, Richard, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what have you been right about this whole time? <laughs> what have you been right about this whole time? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell merchandise you want. You can find out find all of our swag right now by going to this is hell.com and clicking on support where you can see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener supported this is hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support, and thanks to Cherish for contributing to This Is Hell by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. We really appreciate it, Cherish. Thanks. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell on our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us, but we must have your answer in by the end of Thursday's show, tomorrow's show, when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff foils another dictatorship before it can start. Richard will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Again, what have you been right about this whole time? What what have you been right about this whole time? Following our talk with Lolly Kalili, we got a message via Facebook from Jason. <clears throat> and Jason writes to us concerning a topic that Alex and I have been talking about covering for a few years now, but we have never found the right person to have as a guest. Jason writes, have you had an modern monetary theory expert on your show before if not please do so and help bring attention to this very important information about how our economy works i would suggest trying to get stephanie kelton on the show she's a good speaker well respected and has an impressive resume if she's not available there are many other qualified speakers so for those of you who do not know modern monetary theory or mmt is the theory that economies like that of the united states canada japan and others are not constrained by revenues when it comes to federal government spending. Debt or surplus makes no difference. You can spend all you want, and there will be no massive inflation, as strict, you know, balanced budget proponents have said there would be. And many are saying the huge amounts of spending in response to coronavirus are proving MMT to be true, as any bad side effects from these spending have yet to happen. So we wanted someone on the show who would point to the positive and negative aspects of modern monetary theory, and that's the person we could not find. Our problem with booking a guest on this topic has been that we seem to only find cheerleaders for MMT or those who argue it's just not even worth the time to discuss it. Jason's suggested guest Stephanie Kelton had a book come out last year, I think it was in June, called The Deficit Myth, Modern Monetary Theory and the Birth of the People's Economy. So thanks, Jason. We appreciate the tip because we've had difficulty finding someone who is not an ardent supporter or knee-jerk naysayer when it comes to MMT. You can email us as well at chuck at thisishell.com. You can DM us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. And a real quick update on the nightmare that is happening right now in Michigan. After Governor Gretchen Whitmer a Democrat requested a surge of vaccines from the Centers for Disease Control to counter the surge in infections the state is experiencing. And the CDC told Michigan that vaccines alone will not solve their current outbreak. So, no, you're not getting that surge in vaccines. You know, and so they, they were told the state of Michigan was told by the CDC that they simply needed to close the economy back down and implement basic safety protocols. Michigan state legislature, which has been gerrymandered into one party minority rule, responded by saying we won't be doing that. But what they will be doing is using a loophole in Michigan law to suppress the vote. Again, pure Michigan. The Republicans have gerrymandered control of the state legislature. And now, instead of actually 
practicing safety protocols to save people's lives. What they're working on is trying to make Michigan even less democratic. Small d democratic, by the way. Yep, that is pure Michigan. Live from late capitalism, where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy. This is hell. It's not only that infrastructure as it exists today leads to climate change. It also causes inequalities. It contributes to racism and misogyny. It foments domestic and international conflicts. And in its current state, it can destroy hundreds, if not thousands, if not millions of people's lives in an instant. With that frightening image in mind, here to help us figure out what's wrong with infrastructure, why and what we can do about changing infrastructure, returning to This Is Hell, political scholar Lale Khalili wrote the Noema magazine article, Apocalyptic Infrastructures. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Lolly. Hello. It's really nice to be on the show again. Thank you so much for doing it. You did a two-hour lecture, and then you're going to come on the show and do an interview with us for 35 minutes. I cannot thank you enough. Not at all. It, was, it wasn't a lecture. It was an editorial board meeting. So, uh, yeah, so I'm happy to be talking to you right now. I know. And thank uh, listener Robert P., who suggested we have Lale back on to discuss a topic Robert is very interested in, and that is the privatization of infrastructure. Lale was on the show back in May 2020 to discuss her book, Sinews of War and Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula, a book we selected as one of our favorites to be featured here on This Is Hell last year. And you can follow Lale on Twitter at Lale Khalili, and you can read her writing at is it the gamming.org is that correct it is it's a it's a term from melville's moby dick and the gamming is when two ships meet in the sea and their uh, crew and officers switch places for a bit while they socialize so i just thought that i really liked that idea of sort of a momentary moment of socialization and exchange of thought and ideas and it does not surprise me at all that you would be referencing Moby Dick. I have a feeling that you might have read it more than once. Uh, you write that early on the morning of February 7th in the foothills of the Indian Himalayas, a massive flash flood crashed through the Rishanganja hydroelectric dam, sending a tremendous flood of water and debris down the river. Villages and roads and bridges were washed away. A month later, more than 70 bodies had been discovered, but at least 100 people were still missing. Scientists from the Wadia Institute of Himalayan Geology later flew a helicopter over the scene. A glacier on a remote mountain peak had apparently broken off, fallen down a steep hillside, blocked the flow of the river. The water in the river built up and the burst through, causing the massive flooding downstream. So this is death by climate change. What do we miss in our understanding of climate change when we do not report that the cause of these deaths was the process of global warming? What explains why the next day's paper's headlines weren't climate change kills 70 more missing? Um, I think part of it is uh, where the accident happened. I think that the fact that this happened in India, it happened uh, in the foothills of the Himalayas, it was villagers that were killed rather than people living in cities is probably one reason for this. There's obviously um, uh, lives uh, are valued differently across the world. Um, but I also think that there is a resistance to the idea that climate change could be really affecting our lives. And, and that uh, smog that is produced, that emissions that are produced, um, let's say in New York or in Los Angeles, are actually causing changes that are resulting in deaths halfway across the world. Um, and I think that that idea that we're all responsible for one another um, is particularly difficult to take up for a lot of people, especially in, in the US in the wake of um, a sort of a bootstrapping um, me for myself and no one else kind of politics that the Trump and his acolytes had produced over the course of the last four years. So um, to me, this and of course, that idea still exists even with Trump gone. And so I think that is probably what I wanted to touch on the most is that we are responsible for one another. We are what we do, um, particularly in uh, the, the industrialized parts of the world where we consume the most um, hydrocarbons and produce the most emissions per person, uh, really matters in places where people don't have the resources to fight back against climate change. And I'm glad that you point out that the victims of this were the poor, because often those who are the most vulnerable to infrastructure collapse are the most vulnerable. The poor who live near these elements of infrastructure, often suffering from environmental racism with infrastructures that are most dangerous to human health within their communities. Is there inequality in the threat level of infrastructure collapse? Because too often it seems that threats are not addressed until they affect the wealthy. 
Um, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, if you actually, when I teach a class on infrastructure, one of the first examples that I give is of um, the water in Flint, Michigan, uh, as of the water quality in Flint, Michigan, which, um, you know, because of uh, savings, cost savings, and because of terribly racist politics um, in, in the state of Michigan by the governor of the state and by the mayor of the um, uh, of Flint, resulted in, in water coming out of the faucets that had unacceptable levels of pollution and lead in it and, and has probably caused damage to the people of Flint generations on. Um, and, and of course, the reason that it hasn't affected there, there I mean, even today, the water in Flint is still um, not particularly potable. Um, and the reason that it hasn't been fixed is because uh, the people of Flint are poorer, they're working class, and uh, the vast majority are black. And I think that, that those kinds of inequalities are baked into infrastructural distribution um, in, in a lot of the world. And I um, and, and so I would imagine that if tomorrow, for example, let's say uh, that a climate change resulted in water levels coming up and the island of Manhattan being endangered, there would be a lot more thought about trying to address the question of, or more immediately endangered than it already is, there would be a lot of um, thought about the ways in which this can be addressed. So um, I think insurance companies, for example, would be up in arms. Um, uh, so, so there would be there would be a lot more uh, uh, concern about this. It's also interesting to me that what, perhaps the idea of uh, water levels rising, because it's such a gradual thing, doesn't strike one as... Um, something immediate and urgent that needs to be addressed. But climate change is also causing, for example, for in, in, in a massive increase in the frequency and unpredictability of hurricanes. Um, and so when a hurricane, for example, you know, blows through the Caribbean and hits Miami uh, and uh, results in blackouts, uh, electricity blackouts in both Miami and Puerto Rico, it takes no time at all for Miami to restore electricity. Parts of Puerto Rico years on do not have electricity yet. And again, those kinds of inequalities within the countries, within in sort of a colonized or semi-colonized spaces like Puerto Rico and across the globe tend to, um, tend to be very glaring when it comes to questions of um, infrastructure failure. And here in Chicago, the uh, town of East Chicago, they have a, a problem that's just like what's happening in Flint or what happened in Flint, and it's gone unaddressed. It's even a poorer community, so it even gets less coverage. And so it's not like it's only Flint, as you point out. It's it's something that affects the infrastructure everywhere. And as you point out, it's not only that infrastructure is the massive structures like dams, but also water and sewer systems whose subterranean routes make them invisible, electricity lines, telecommunication masts, and satellite dishes, which are visible but unremarkable because of their ubiquity. How much of a threat is climate change to us having access to electricity, clean water, reliable sewage service, and our access to each other when it comes to its threat to telecommunications? Because it's easy. It's, you're just alluding to this. It's easy to be here in Chicago, far from the ocean shore, and feel insulated to some extent from the worst aspects of climate, uh, climate change, global warming. So how much of a threat is climate change to all of us everywhere by making vulnerable what you call the furniture of our everyday lives. I mean, I think that it's um, the, the the danger and the effect um, varies uh, because because you obviously have much slower moving and therefore uh, frog in a boiling water situation, which which is the rise of the oceans because it rises, let's say, a couple of centimeters every year and therefore it's not visible. But then there are much more immediate um, uh, impacts of climate change, which we don't necessarily attribute uh, to climate change. So um, one of the things that people in uh, Southeast US have been suffering uh, is a massive increase in tornadoes. Um, so, uh, and, and deadlier tornadoes. And uh, that is caused by uh, the, the shifting climate patterns. Uh, as I said, uh, typhoons in uh, the Pacific and uh, in, in uh, Indian Ocean have increased in frequency and in intensity, as have hurricanes in the Caribbean and in the Atlantic Ocean. But we also see colder winters in many places uh, and and more extreme summers. Uh, so for us here in the UK, you know, it's a, the temperature is supposed to be uh, kind of mild year round. Uh, it's often supposed to be grey. But last year we had days 
almost a week where the temperature was above uh, 35 degrees centigrade. Let me do a quick calculation. It's, it's definitely above 90 degrees or so. Um, uh, so it, it, it was, you know, th th those kinds of uh, unexpected uh, and immediate effects of uh, global warming are becoming more and more visible. And we're not attributing it to that, but it's also causing all sorts of infrastructure failures. So here in the UK, um, uh, subway cars, tube cars uh, do not have um, most of them don't have air conditioning, but when the temperature is above 90 degrees and people are sweat, you know, stuffed in the subway car, a tube car together. Now, thankfully, because of the pandemic, that wasn't the case. But in ordinary years, if the temperature goes up like that, then the infrastructure is unable to handle it, or it's unable to handle the surge in energy usage when we need extra heating or extra cooling because of because of the changes, because of the drastic changes in temperature, or when a storm blows and our telecommunication or electricity um, functions uh, uh, come, you know, crashing down. But it, other instances are also interesting to me. So uh, in a couple of... Uh, pretty terrible storms. Again, in the US tends to be um, extremely interesting for this reason because of the extreme effects of uh, climate change on various parts of the US. And at the same time, the inability or refusal of most of its politicians to deal with it. One of the, one of the most horrific incidents that happened in Southeast US was that a um, a, a massive storm blew through a waste uh, pool, waste lake for um, pork production uh, plants there, industrial pork production plants. And so this incredibly toxic dangerous waste pool started flowing into the rivers. Again, this is a failure in infrastructure. It is, uh, it, and in this instance, it's tied into uh, industrial farming. It's tied into uh, broader, again, shift in pattern of weather, which comes with climate change, which is all tied into uh, kind of rapacious capitalist, you know, profit, uh, profiteering, which is resulting in all of these problems. You write of privatized infrastructure, blackouts and rationed electricity are a feature of life across the world. From California to Venezuela and Lebanon, the privatization of public utilities is responsible for some punitive global or domestic politics for others. So what impact do privatized utilities have on the ability to provide these services during climate change? Can a system that already causes rolling blackouts, something that was mostly unheard of when they were public utilities, can they provide services as global warming's effects worsen? Um, it's a good question. Uh, despite your QAnon representative claiming that it is Jewish space lasers or Soros' <laughs> space lasers or Rothschild space lasers uh, that are causing, uh, you know, the, the devastation and destruction in California. In fact, actually, what resulted in in the devastation there is the fact that PG&E, the electric company that is going there, is to, is engaged in all sorts of cost savings. It's in, you know maintenance of areas, etc., etc., et which have not been upkept, up and so the privatization of what is should be a fundamental right is access to this utility has result, it resulted eventually in the kind of fires that burnt down uh, a good portion of California. In the case of Texas, it's even more striking where, where they moved to a fully unregulated market. Uh, what you ended up happening and what, what ended up happening was that um, the, in fact, it wasn't uh, the uh, uh, renewable energy. It wasn't uh, the freezing of the um, wind turbines that resulted in um, half of Texas losing electricity. Um, it was, in fact, the result of the disconnection of Texas from the national grid, but also at the same time, the fully market-oriented uh, dependence on natural gas, which resulted in prices suddenly going up, natural gas suddenly not being available. And because it, this was an quote unquote, efficient market system, it was not robust. It did not have any redundancies. It did not have any alternative possibilities. And so, you know, Texas lost um, electricity. El Paso, which interestingly, because of uh, a whole series of local politics, was actually connected to parts of national grid, didn't undergo the same problems. And so they didn't have electricity go out in the, in the same way. And so it's, it's a very clear 
instance of where privatization um, ends up being quite dangerous to people's lives because the, the sub-zero temperatures that Texas saw or the forest fires that California saw um, are not just events that pass by. People die when stuff like that happens. And I think that is one instance. And then you have uh, the privatization of access to potable water in a lot of the world, which makes it incredibly difficult for the poor, for example, to be able to afford water that is drinkable, that is you know that you can cook with that you can wash your mouth with that you can that you can use in every in your everyday life and this privatization of these again enormously crucial uh, utilities that are absolutely necessary for life in order for some companies to private uh, to, to profit from them uh, actually means that those who can afford it will end up enjoying those utilities but those who can't end up suffering uh, the deprivation from it and that of course means the widening of the gap of of, of inequalities um, and and of uh, of course injustice and unfairness in the process of um, allocation of resources uh, via infrastructure. So why isn't that the debate here in the United States? Is that the debate right now in the UK? Is there an open and honest discussion happening right now about privatization or public control of utilities, about privatization in general? Because we were all promised that privatization meant everything was going to be lower cost and far more efficient, so service would be better and costs would be lower. Is that what ended up happening, Lolly? I think that's a quite a funny thing because, again, in the aftermath of the Texas freeze uh, and, a, and a fully market, you know, supply demand kind of price setting process, there were people who were running a three bedroom apartment who were getting bills for, you know, thousands of dollars um, of, you know, for what what was ordinarily uh, a couple of hundred dollars of electricity usage per month. Um, interestingly, in the UK, um, for a moment, as Jeremy Corbyn was. Was the, was the head of the Labour Party? We had uh, we had a serious discussion about nationalisation of very important infrastructures. In fact, Cor when Corbyn suggested this was before uh, COVID, so when Corbyn suggested that the that um, high speed uh, internet uh, should be a, a freely available nationalised utility to everybody, everybody made fun of him, and then come. Uh, the pandemic and everybody is stuck inside because of the lockdowns and suddenly the idea that you need um, a high functioning uh, high speed internet from which private companies cannot profit becomes absolutely crucial to the operation of the economy for people who are working from home uh, and so suddenly the, all the people that were making fun of Corbyn for, for that idea are um, talking about this using a slightly different language I think the US is a slightly different case because I think uh, in, in the US, somehow the narrative that uh, private um, business, that, that, that corporations, that, um, that the profit motive and that capital should actually be allowed to function in an unfettered way um, has become so prevalent and so, so unchallenged, really, in, a, in any sort of a substantial way until very recently. And and uh, and by what I mean by until very recently is I mean that there has been a shift in the U.S. We see a lot more younger people that are questioning this, and I think it is a younger generation. Um, that, that, that is mobilizing around this because they are actually seeing their lives being affected by these failures in infrastructure in a variety of sorts of ways. And they're seeing that private firms are not delivering that kind of a promised um, Eden of, uh, you know, access to, to cheap goods. In fact, uh, when you deregulate of course, corporations are going to try to extract as much profit as they can. And, they, if, and if they're running infrastructures, that means the fundamental parts of our lives, as I said, the furniture of our life that we depend on, ends up becoming a sort of a, a resource for extraction of profit for the corporations that earn them. So I think that's, that's quite, um, I, I think that there needs to be a debate around that. Uh, there needs to be a debate not only around ownership of infrastructure, but also about who gets to talk about which infrastructures are built where um, and how. And I think that, that those kinds of debates are absolutely necessary for democratizing infrastructures and for thinking about who benefits from them uh, and who's hurt by them. So it appears our infrastructures are not prepared for crisis. So what does that reveal to you about our infrastructures when they are not prepared for a crisis, whether it's global warming or the pandemic? 
Well, it tells me several things. I mean, the first thing that it tells me is that there there has been, uh, because of this uh, devaluation of the public in favor of the private, the public investments in the kinds of public goods that everybody can use um, has uh, fallen precipitously. And that means that even existing infrastructures are not being repaired in ways that are uh, that, that are useful, that, that allows them to continue on um, for uh, for other generations. Um, so that's that's one thing. That's uh, there has been a drop in public investments. But I think there has been also other things. Um, when the when you allow for infrastructures uh, to be built in order for private firms to benefit, um, and that in this uh, thinking we are not taking account of the public who uses it uh, or, or the public who lives near the infrastructure, um, we end up uh, essentially saying that those people who might, who the infrastructure might act to the detriment of, have no say in this. So if one example that I can give for this are the various pipelines that are built across the U.S. Midwest that are often going through indigenous Americans' um, nations and uh, Native American nations. And those pipelines uh, could leak. They could, they could have uh, leakages of essentially uh, tar uh, oil into uh, extremely sensitive water systems. Uh, they they could and and they essentially also create securitized zones around those pipelines as they're going. As I said, through for example, Na Native American nations. So on the one hand, the pipelines make really good money for that. Some of them come from Alberta. Some of them come come from uh, the Dakotas. Make very good money for the fracking uh, companies or for the shale oil companies. That of course now the. Um, the, the Keystone pipeline has now been uh, stopped by Biden, but for a time it was going to make money for you know firms in Alberta, um, whereas the Native Americans who were going to be living near the pipelines, their life, life, life and livelihoods were going to be destroyed. And then, of course, there's the larger effect of that, which is that once that oil was brought in to the refineries on the Gulf Coast of the U.S., um, then it was also going to be producing all sorts of emissions that were going to affect not only the people along the route of the pipeline, but elsewhere in the world. So that consideration is also a really important one. And finally, the final con consideration is, I think that last bit, which is that not only immediate, not, not only people in the immediate vicinities of infrastructures, but people very far away are affected by this. We need to start, start thinking about um, our communities that are affected by these infrastructures as being... Yes, the people near us, but also a global community. So when we're thinking about uh, redundancy in our electric systems, it might behoove us to consider that perhaps the ch a cheaper option of, let's say, using natural gas or um, oil may not be in the long term a better decision for the planet as sustainable forms of electricity production would be. It might behoove us to think about uh, retiring hydrocarbon fuels uh, since they seem to be at the root of so much uh, so much climate change. It might behoove us to think that if we are producing, for example, electricity, that its distribution should be cooperative, that it should be much more equal, that perhaps it should not be privatized in order for the people who are benefiting from it not having to pay um, over-the-top prices for it. So there's a whole lot of considerations that need to be taken into account when we're thinking about infrastructures. So do you think that the privatized infrastructure system and service, do you think they could survive democratization? Do they need to <laughs> not have a democratized system in order to exist? I, th I think that is absolutely right. I think that you need a transformation in the ways in which uh, we, the people, control our economies. And, and I think that should the systems be democratized and the, the profit motive will, will have, to, you know, it, it essentially challenges the profit motive as the primary use um, and as the primary me uh, reason for infrastructures. And so I think that in some ways, uh, in this instance, privatization is very anti-democratic. Can there be an infrastructure then that is not detrimental to the environment? Or is there something inherent in our thinking about infrastructures in general that makes them environmentally destructive? 
I think that's a really good question. I mean, obviously, we are all going to need clean water. We obviously need to um, have schools, right? Uh, we need healthcare, um, and uh, we need infrastructures that allow for us to flourish. Um, and I think that all of these things come with us with uh, a certain uh, set of benefits for some, certain set of uh, harms for others. And we have to. I think there has to be uh, consistency discussion um, over who benefits and who's harmed and it has to, and there has to be a considered discussion about whether the benefits from a particular infrastructure will actually in the end result in long-term environmental devastations long-term costs to the public that in the end are actually make the current the short-term benefits not worthwhile um, and that I, I do think that for really large-scale infrastructures that kind of a democratic consultation is absolutely necessary it can't be a top-down process. So these are for-profit capital accumulating infrastructures. Are these infrastructures then of power and control? And seeing as how we depend on these infrastructures for our daily survival, and they are such a part of our daily lives, is there anything we can do to not be complicit in these systems that are so entrenched and have so much power over our lives? Um, it's a it's a really good question. I mean, one of the things that has been really striking to me is that indigenous communities in a lot of the world, and in particular in the Americas, have been organizing, for example, against oil pipelines, petroleum infrastructures, et cetera, et cetera. In other parts of the world, there is a lot of mobilization around mining, which is, uh, you know, extractive industries, which often are actually operate a lot according to colonial, neo-colonial rules. You know, you know they de devastate the environment in a lot of the countries of the global south and the profit is expatriated or repatriated elsewhere. And so in, in all of those instances, we find that there are indigenous communities that are organizing around demands uh, for uh, uh, limitations to the operations of these extractive industries that are also devastating to the environment. So my sense is that the best way to democratize the process is uh, for uh, genuine grassroots organization at every level of communities and in various forms. I, I do believe that there's while there's room for electoral politics, you want to elect representatives to your state houses or to your uh, county councils or to your um, parliaments or Congress or Senate that represent the interests of their constituency. But I also think that there's also room for um, extra electoral forms of political mobilization, activism, protest. Um, I, uh, you know, the standing, uh, uh, the, 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 the kind of, org not only uh, the, the major organization by various native communities in, uh, in, in the Americas, uh, in, you know, the, uh, that try to uh, f fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline or the Wet'suwet'en people in Canada, all of these uh, instances of protests which are extra electoral are also enormously important in trying to transform the, the situation in which um, infrastructures hurt us. So I think that has to be, um, that the, those two forms of mobilization have to work side by side. And you mentioned redistributive infrastructures, and you point out that they allow benefits to reach the public who often fund them. In the Indian state of Goa, the Goenchi Mati movement is campaigning for zero loss mining, which would distribute profits for the benefit of the citizens of the state. But, Lale, that still continues the mining. Is fossil fuel extraction continuing, but now the people profit? Because there has been criticism of late when it comes to revolutionary movements being funded by fossil fuel extraction. Yeah, I think that that's definitely a problem, right? Because, I mean, if fossil fuels are going to kill us, it doesn't matter who's operating them, if it's a revolutionary movement or if it's the public. But I do think that in some ways also, the, the and, and, and in part, I think that's why I was also pointing out to the indigenous communities in, in the Americas organizing around fossil fuel, because for them, it's actually not just about who profits, but it's also about actually stopping the kinds of destructive um, uh, infrastructures that are, um, that, that are uh, devastating uh, the environment in those places. I also think that in we we also see the abolitionist movement and the, the police abolitionist and the prison abolitionist movement in the U.S. is also addressing these questions of infrastructure because, of course, if we think about the police and the prisons as being the infrastructure of capital that actually allow for the uh, for profit uh, for capital accumulation to occur uncontested or at least to put down any contestation against this, 
then the the forms of abolitionist uh, movement that we have uh, really seen take off over the last uh, decade or so um, are also a part of this kind of a revolutionary struggle. So um, I do think that it, the only having redistributive infrastructures is not enough. I do really think that there needs to be actually a much more uh, revolutionary way of thinking about uh, the world as our community, the planet as, as uh, we, we need to hold the planet in the palms of our hands and think about if we want to really survive, if we want multiple, you know, generations after us to survive. And if we do, then we really need to do things differently. And one of those, one of those solutions could be degrowth to not emphasize uh, economic growth to the exclusion, for example, of, um, demands for equality to the exclusion of demands for better environmental protection. I think uh, a lot of activist groups that are organizing around questions of degrowth are now asking questions about the fundamental operations of global capital today, and not just about who holds uh, capital or let's say it's sort of fossil fuel producing industries in their hands, but in fact, the very fundamental need for those kinds of fossil fuel producing devastating environmentally devastating processes. Um, again, I think we really need democratic organization around this. We need democratic mobilization around this in order to be able to address them. And I think that um, should such a grassroots capacity to be able to self-educate and to self-organize around questions of infrastructure in our communities and then in our countries and then across the globe to emerge, that could really perhaps save us from what seems at the moment a kind of an inevitable move towards devastation because of climate change. We've had guests on the show who have argued, like you just did, that economic growth is the driving force behind both our current crises of climate change, pandemic, do infrastructure as they exist today, do they impose runaway economic growth upon us? Is that the function of the infrastructure and that's why we cannot stop economic growth? I mean, I think that uh, infrastructures are one element of this kind of the, the, the enthroning of economic growth as the ultimate be all and end all. And one can see, for example, that the World Bank looks to infrastructure as a panacea for everything. You also see it actually with the infrastructure. When Trump was elected, he was saying that he was going to be investing in infrastructure. Biden now has an infrastructure bill um, put forward. And I think that, you know, the, on the one hand, one can think about these infrastructures as kind of a Keynesian weapons in which, uh, or Keynesian tools in which you sort of um, invest a lot of public money uh, into something, so filling up, for example, uh, orphaned oil wells, um, in order to be able to produce jobs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think that we need to go one step beyond that. I think that if we are thinking about massive public investment in infrastructures, there also needs to be massive public engagement around the question of infrastructures and a questioning of whether or not these infrastructures are necessary for economic growth or they're necessary for the functioning of equal, uh, redistributive, environmentally careful societies. And you write that as the historian Julie Livingston argued in Self-Devouring -de Growth, her book, the imperative of the ideology of growth is, quote, grow or die, grow or be eaten, with an implicit assumption that this growth is predicated on uninhibited consumption. And you add that degrowth would entail slowing down fossil fuel consumption, arresting the constant drive toward the financialization of every aspect of life, and contracting the processes that produce waste. It asks all of us to consume less and more thoughtfully. So how much of a threat to humanity is the end of economic growth? Does ending economic growth mean death? Why does the idea of consuming less frighten us so much? It's an interesting question. Um, I mean, there is there is an element of ideology about it, right? Advertising as a science, as a, as a business emerges in order to make us all feel inadequate and so consume in order to, to you know, it feeds on insecurities that it, it, it itself produces. And so um, it, for me, it's been really interesting that over the course of the pandemic and because of the lockdowns, the amount of consumption in which we have engaged has dramatically dropped. At least it has. Um, I, I've looked at this 
statistics for the UK, and it has. And or and and although the stresses of isolation are are much, you know, I don't want to belittle it at all. In some ways, that could potentially be, um, you know, a, a one good thing that has come out of this. Uh, one of the things that was really quite striking in the immediate. Uh, week or two after there had been lockdown here in the UK was how the air quality in London had improved. London has terrible air quality. And so why not? Why, why, why don't we limit um, driving? Why don't, why don't we depend more on public transport? Um, why don't we uh, depend less on cheaply produced goods by exploited workers halfway across the world? Um, and I think that those questions need to be asked and alternatives need to be sought. You mentioned public-private partnerships, and mm. you point out how whenever those seem to happen, the uh, profits are privatized and they socialize the losses. It's a common refrain of neoliberalism over the last 50 years. Do public-private partnerships mean privatizing profits and socializing losses every time? Do public-private partnerships mean private business interests being prioritized over democratic values? Yes. I mean, that's a very simple question. So under um, uh, our previous Labour government, um, which which was sort of a continuation, really, if you will, of, of uh, in, ma- in many ways, a continuation of sort of um, Thatcherite policies, um, one of the things that re- they really did was these public-private partnerships in order to build infrastructure such as schools and hospitals. Um, and I uh, used to live in Edinburgh at the time that that was happening. And one of these, the, you know, really, really old, beautiful, full hospital um, was uh, decommissioned, it turned into eventually into expensive uh, flats and expensive apartments. And a new uh, hospital was built by public-private financing outside of town, uh, a little bit further away, had fewer beds. And actually, within months of its construction, it started having problems. Some of the schools that were built in Scotland under a public-private partnership actually had to be shut down because they were unsafe uh, structurally. And so to me, I mean, that was, you know, it was a Labour government that was actually putting money into this. And, you know, the the loans that they have taken out are still being paid back. Meanwhile, the private firms that built them have profited handsomely. They have sold that hospital um, for tens of times what they bought it for, you know, and in, 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 uh, developed it and sold it. And, uh, and, and who's the poorer for it? The residents of um, Edinburgh and Scotland more broadly. And that has been the case in almost every instance that I can think of, of public-private partnerships. So, uh, so my answer is that public-private partnerships, which seems to be one of the things that the World Bank really kind of um, uh, recommends in many instances, generally has translated into the public footing the bill, uh, the private uh, p- corporations taking the profits, and if there are any risks or losses, uh, again, the taxpayer picking up the bill for that too. So, you know, um, I, I think it's one of the biggest scams there's ever been. And you're right that infrastructures would have to be redistributive. They must not re- enrich some of the at the expense of others. Does that mean an end to foreign control and its control via foreign investment. And and what impact would that have on geopolitics and outcomes like war? Yeah, that's a very good question. So one of the things that's really interesting is in that a lot of the infrastructure that is being um, built around the world, uh, well, some of the some of the bits of it that I'm looking at are built through investment for private profit. But then there are also developmental bank type um, uh, investments in infrastructures. And one of the things that has been really striking to me is that um, the uh, various Chinese development banks and uh, Exim uh, import export banks, ex- export import banks, have been in making huge investments in infrastructures in Asia and Africa in particular, but also Latin America to a lesser extent. And what is striking about this is that the kinds of terms under which these infrastructures are being built um, benefit China in terms of allowing China to, for example, use technologies that it has developed to in those countries to, to, to be used in the construction of these infrastructures. It, of course, uh, translates into forms of strategic alliance, et cetera, et cetera. But also it has generated some conflicts. Um, and of course, you know, uh, some of these infrastructures that China are bu- China's building are actually exacerbating 
both domestically to China and externally, um, repression of minority communities, everybody from Uyghurs to uh, the Rohingya and, um, and, and to the Baluch, the Rohingya in Myanmar and the Baluch in Pakistan. So, so it, it, it's never uh, these forms of investment, which are not necessarily private investment, they're actually public forms of investment, um, are also not without some associated problems with them. But what is also quite interesting about the Chinese investments is that it's being challenged by the US, in part because the US sees this as the beginning of a new Cold War. Um, so uh, to me, it's fascinating that it, the, the Belt and Road Initiative, the China's infrastructure investments, has so many different ramifications, has so many different impacts on so many different levels. Um, and I think that that is also something where more democratic engagement, both, I, I suppose, in China around where the you know investments are going, but also uh, in the countries in which these infrastructures are being built, needs to be um, ne needs to be put on the table. Those uh, democratic consultations are necessary, and of course, in some of these places, they're not going to happen. I don't see the Myanmarese uh, military government, uh, for example, being interested in what the Rohingya have to say about Chinese um, infrastructures. You mentioned indigenous actions uh, in protesting extraction. And, but, you know, protesting a pipeline or drilling or contamination is not like protesting, as you point out, prisons, border walls, military bases, and armament, armament supply chains, which are all means of violence, deadly violence. So to what extent is our infrastructure, as it currently exists, enforced by violent means like the police and the military, is challenging infrastructure and de democratizing it? Is that a challenge to police and military power? In a lot of instances, it is. Um, I think uh, the, um, for example, the, the uh, North Dakota pipeline movement was seen as that kind of a challenge to securitization to the police force. And that was why there was such a sort of a, uh, you know, quite a drastic military response uh, to um, uh, to the protests there. In many instances, infrastructures do come with built-in processes of securitization. They come in with uh, barbed wire fences, um, surveillance, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that in some ways, um, challenging ordinary infrastructures also sometimes entails challenging the course of power of the state um, and to varying degrees in different places. But I do think that um, given the ways in which infrastructure is seen as a kind of a security tool of the state, then challenging it is seen as a challenge to those security apparatuses as well. The Biden administration right now is working on a huge infrastructure plan here in the United States. And Biden is arguing many things that have not been considered to be part of infrastructures will be included in his infrastructure plan, like expanded Medicaid and uh, more assistance for seniors. So how would you define the, the scope of what infrastructures are? Do they what do they include maybe be beyond the physical infrastructure that we often mm. think of? I think that's a really good question. I think there has been a gendering also, a gendering process around the infrastructures. Um, you know, and, and uh, we see, for example, concrete, both um, metaphorically speaking, but literally speaking also, um, object as being infrastructural. A port is an infrastructure, a, um, uh, an airport is infrastructure, roads are infrastructure, electricity, water, etc. because we can see them because they're visible. But we also, and, and I think this is kind of not controversial, it's um, education is an infrastructure. Um, for, for society. Healthcare is an infrastructure for society. And as populations in the global north become um, older, forms of social care and elder care are definitely parts of our infrastructure. If we want to have a functioning society um, in which uh, we as citizens contribute and and I'm not talking about financially contribute, but contribute to the sort of the, the communal, social, and communal and social life of the society, then we need to have these forms of communal and social support for one another. And if that translates into more childcare or more elder care or better health care, that's definitely, to me, infrastructural. So do you think this changes our focus then from one of hyper individualization we have here in the United States, where if you take care of yourself, everything will work out uh, fine? Does that shift that focus to a more, when we think about infrastructures, to a more systemic process and how we are 
uh, affected by a system rather than just by our own actions? I think um, I, I would have hoped that the pandemic would have revealed how dependent we are, not only on the day-to-day -day interactions that we have with one another, but on the care that we've provided for one another. One of the things that has been striking in the UK and from what I've heard in the US as well is how important mutual aid groups have been to sustain uh, to sustaining people in lockdown or in, in situations where they've lost their jobs. Um, how important it has been for people to organize together, for example, around questions of rent strikes um, uh, and and uh, and uh, securing, for example, uh, sick time uh, at work. So, in a sense, it's become clear in a moment of extraordinary crisis how dependent we are in, on one another. Of course, I, there's a massive ideological backlash to that as well in the U.S. and we see that in everything from people who are refusing to wear masks to people who are refusing to be vaccinated because they're only thinking about me and myself rather than, for example, the communal effects of vaccine or or the, the way that vaccination works um, only if uh, there's massive community uh, uptake of it. And I think that that I'm hoping that, that uh, the, the, the catastrophe that uh, COVID has been um, for the US, for the UK and for the rest of the world um, and the ways in which the, the altruistic, the open, the communal ways in which Pub the public have responded in many instances actually shows the way to, to a possible group, uh, to a possible collective and systemic sense of um, obligation and belonging rather than as what you called hyper-individualized uh, sense of I'll get mine, I don't care about anybody else. Just two more questions. You point out that in recent months, the conservative Tory government in Britain issued a license to open a new deep coal mine in Cumbria County. While many oil rigs, rigs in the North Sea are being mothballed, the Biden administration is issuing offshore and on-land licenses for new oil exploration. So to what extent do you think the Biden administration and Britain's Tories are displaying climate change denialism by continuing to open up areas for fossil fuel resource extraction. Can you both purport to believe the science of climate change and continue to pursue projects that contribute to climate change? It's interesting because they seem to be doing that in the sense that the Tories, for example, have policies that, that require uh, the UK's overall carbon emissions to drop over you know, a certain sort of number of decades. Um, and Biden purports to believe in climate change and has done some tasks, for example, uh, such as um, uh, you know, uh, uh, shutting down the Keystone pipeline. But having said that, it also seems, I mean, one, one of the things that has been quite um, striking is that many um, of the uh, fracking companies, independent oil uh, companies in the, U in the US have actually been silent, quietly jubilant because, in fact, the oil prices have gone up and they have received more licenses for to do fracking, uh, as they have done also for offshore explorations. And so, um, and in that instance, also both independents and major oil companies. And, you know, um, so, so it seems like that when it comes to extraction of oil, it seems to be a little bit business as usual. Um, for me, the opening of a coal mine in, the, in Cumbria was actually really quite striking. I mean, Margaret Thatcher, uh, you know, became the kind of the most hated figure in 20th century Britain, in part because of her policies she had in closing the coal mines. So there is a particular bitter irony in the Tories reopening coal mines in Cumbria. We have been speaking with political scholar Lale Khalili, who wrote the Noema magazine article, Apocalyptic Infrastructures. Lale is quickly becoming my very favorite guest to have here on This Is Hell. We want to, oh, thank, listener, we want to thank listener Robert P., who suggested we have Lale back on the show to discuss a topic that Robert is very interested in, and that is the privatization of infrastructure. You can find our interview with Lale from last year when we discussed her book, Sinews of War and Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula by going to our website and searching on her name. And you can follow her on Twitter at Lale Khalili, and you can read Lale's writing at thegamming.org. One last question for you, and as we do with each and every one of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. So, Lale, what would you call a government that does not provide public services? But public corp or private corporations do. What is a government that has farmed out, outsourced, and sold off its civic duties? What kind of government is that? Government from hell? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, I don't think that's government. I mean, that's uh, one one response would be. Uh, it is a neoliberal state. Um, I would say that that is uh, a, a state that operates according to the tenets of capital. So is that, because I don't want to use this term loosely, uh, is that fascism? Um, I, 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 don't, I, I don't think it's quite uh, fascism. I think fascism requires um, modalities of repression uh, that, for example, in the U.S., um, uh, black folks in the U.S. experience um, quite extensively. Um, I'm not sure whether or not it's fascism. I think, I think I'd have to think about that uh, a bit more. Do you think it's a distraction to even think about it? No, I don't think it's a distraction at all. I think it is really important, in part because of the mobilizational force of, of the term fascism and because of the histories of it. And I also think that it is important because, as um, George Jackson and a number of former Black Panthers have told us, um, the experience of fascism is, has actually been very real in, in the U.S., and so uh, especially for black folks there. And so I don't think it is a distraction at all. Whether or not we call the government of the U.S. fascist at this stage, um, I'm not 100% certain of. I, I don't think so. Um, I, I do think that there are definitely tendencies towards certain, certainly under people like Trump, towards organizing fascist movements um, that could potentially, uh, I mean, you know, uh, seize power. Uh, and, and there were a number of events that moved in that direction, obviously, under Trump. Um, but I think I'd, yeah. Yeah, your listeners are going to hate me on this. I'm going to be com completely equivocal <laughs> so, and not give you a clear answer on that one. Thank you so much for being back on our show. Do you, are you working on a new book? I am, actually, about oil tankers, of all things. <laughs> what a surprise. Uh, Lala, yeah. I really appreciate you being on the show. When that book comes out, you know you're going to be on the show again, and we're going to bug you for the rest of your life. So I apologize Absolutely. for cursing you with our emails on a regular basis. Thank you so much for being on our show again. It's a blessing. It's not a curse. and It is a total pleasure. I really had fun. Thank right. you. Take care, Lolly. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bringing you... Bong hitting journalism since 1996. This is hell. This week's question from hell is, what have you been right about this whole time? What have you been right about this whole time, Richard? How are our lis listeners responding to this week's question from hell? Responding well, but I need to find... The most recent? Where we are. Here we go. I got it. Uh, caveat says that, quote, retarded, unquote, will be reclaimed and used to self-identify with pride by the Fox News pundit community. So... Still right about it, though. <laughs> it won't happen till later this year, he says. So we had somebody on the show in 1999 who was from an organization called the National Alliance for the Disabled. Right. And I asked the woman about the word retarded, and she told me that mental health advocacy groups were trying to reclaim the word retarded back in 1999 or 2000 and i made a really inappropriate joke about it of course you did <laughs> so go ahead richard i'm not going to repeat that really inappropriate joke thank you <laughs> any more answers what have you been right about this whole time aaron d says there is no such thing as too much parsley in the falafel dough <laughs> and that's a reference to alex's picture that he posts he has a falafel uh obsession, obsession. with the question from hell post <laughs> he always posts pictures of falafel i'm still trying to figure out what the connection is there aaron d says no shakespeare coming from the monkeys at of at the typewriters. <laughs> On the typewriter. I get it. <laughs> Ronaldo, I think we did this one. The, the Ad Accordion music is sexy. Yeah, yeah, we did that one. Concertina, by the way, is way sexier because it's smaller. There's not as many keys involved. It's a whole bunch of button playing instead. Way better. So, what have you been right about this whole time? Spencer N says, I will not be the winner of the weekly question from hell. <laughs> Joshua L. says, I should have taken a nap. Mason B. says, Millennials, grammar and usage. <laughs> I like the grammar usage there. And uh, Martin F. says, that the butler did it. Hit it and quit it. <laughs> what have you been right about this whole time? Mason W. says, which type of socialism is our best bet? 
Let's not mention that I keep changing my mind. <laughs> Wally R says, Reagan was a scum. <laughs> yes, he was. That is very much so the case. But I appreciate the brevity, Wally. Thank you very much. You almost made me cough up my coffee. <laughs> what have you been right about this whole time? Sin S says, it was Earth all along. <laughs> Thank you. Gorilla Gramophonics says, Embrace the dark age now and beat the rush. <laughs> the new dark age. I like that. Brandon S. answers, I'm going to regret this tomorrow. <laughs> That's something you're always right about. And, wow. Uh, two more. What All have right. you been right about this whole time? Marco G. says that venture capitalism implies the existence of venture capital, of venture communism. <laughs> it does. I like the idea of venture communism. And Jacob H. says, confirmation bias. <laughs> that is what I'm right about all of the time. I was right about it in the past. I'm going to be right about it in the future. I'm going to be right about it forever. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week, uh, today's show, I should say. It's Richard Norwood. Richard, who yes, is on tomorrow's show beginning at our normal time, 10 a.m. Chicago time here at thisishell.com. Thursday, we have Alexander Zaychek on his article, How Bill Gates Impeded Global Access to COVID, to COVID Vaccines. And what's Jeff talking about again? Uh, something Foil. about a dictator. Foils a dictatorship? Yeah, he's foiling Foil. a dictatorship. Tripped a dictator. Yeah. Tune in to tomorrow's show, beginning 10 a.m. Chicago time, streaming live here at thisishell.com. Listen to the podcast that's posted shortly after our live stream at the same place, as well as Share it on social media. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Richard Norwood. Thanks to Richard for producing. Thanks, Richard, for mounting these uh, microphones so well oh, here you're in the I very was, uh, I was happy to come up and be crafty. <laughs> <laughs> thanks to Lale. Thanks to Richard. Thanks to producer Alex Jerry for booking Lale. With my most sincere apologies. Yes, I am a white dude, but keep in mind, I am also a race and gender traitor. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>